0: St. Bartholomew's Eve by G. A. Henty. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Read by Anna Christensen. Chapter One: Driven from Home. In the year fifteen sixty seven, there were few towns in the southern counties of England that did not contain a colony, more or less large, of French Protestants. For thirty years the Huguenots had been exposed to constant and cruel persecutions. Many thousands had been massacred by the soldiery, burned at the stake, or put to death with dreadful tortures. Fifty thousand, it was calculated, had, in spite of the most stringent measures of prevention, left their homes and made their escape across the frontiers. These had settled for the most part in the Protestant cantons of Switzerland, in Holland, or England. As many of those who reached our shores were but poorly provided with money, they naturally settled in or near the ports of landing. Canterbury was a place in which many of the unfortunate emigrants found a home. Here one Gaspar Vellon, his wife, and her sister, who had landed in the year 1547, had established themselves. They were among the first comers, but the French colony had grown, gradually, until it numbered several hundreds. The Huguenots were well liked in the town, being pitied for their misfortunes, and admired for the courage with which they bore their losses, setting to work, each man at his trade if he had one, or if not, taking to the first work that came to hand. They were quiet and God-fearing folk, very good towards each other, and to their poor countrymen on their way from the coast to London, entertaining them to the best of their power, and sending them forward on their way with letters to the Huguenot Committee in London." and with sufficient money in their pockets to pay their expenses on the journey and to maintain them for a while until some employment could be found for them gaspar Veillon had been a landowner near Sivray in Potoux. he was connected by blood with several noble families in that district and had been among the first to embrace the reformed religion for some years he had not been interfered with as it was upon the poorer and more defenceless classes that the first fury of the persecutors fell But as the attempts of Francis to stamp out the new sect failed, and his anger rose more and more against them, persons of all ranks fell under the ban. The prisons were filled with Protestants who refused to confess their errors. Soldiers were quartered in the towns and villages, where they committed terrible atrocities upon the Protestants, and Gaspar, seeing no hope of better times coming, or of being permitted to worship in peace and quietness, gathered together what money he could, and made his way with his wife and her sister, to La Rochelle, whence he took ship to London. Disliking the bustle of a large town, he was recommended by some of his compatriots to go down to Canterbury, where three or four fugitives from his own part of the country had settled. One of these was a weaver by trade, but without money to manufacture looms or to set up in his calling, Gaspar joined him as partner, embarking the little capital he had saved— and being a shrewd clear-headed man he carried on the business part of the concern while his partner the croix worked in, at the manufacture as the french colony in canterbury increased they had no difficulty in obtaining skilled hands from among them the business grew in magnitude and the profits were large in spite of the fact that numbers of similar enterprises had been established by the huguenot immigrants in london and other places they were indeed amply sufficient to enable gaspard Veylon, to live in the condition of a substantial citizen, to aid his fellow-countrymen, and to lay by a good deal of money. His wife's sister had not remained very long with him. She had, upon their first arrival, given lessons in her own language to the daughters of Burgesses, and of the gentry near the town. But, three years after the arrival of the family there, she had married a well-to-do young yeoman who farmed a hundred acres of his own land, two miles from the town." His relations and neighbors had shaken their heads over what they considered his folly, in marrying the pretty young Frenchwoman, but ere long they were obliged to own that his choice had been a good one. Just after his first child was born he was, when returning home one evening from market, knocked down and run over by a drunken carter, and was so injured that for many months his life was in danger. Then he began to mend, but though he gained in strength he did not recover the use of his legs— being completely paralyzed from the hips downward, and, as it soon appeared, was destined to remain a helpless invalid all his life. From the days of the accident, Lucie had taken the management of affairs in her own hands, and having been brought up in the country, and being possessed of a large share of the shrewdness and common sense for which Frenchwomen are often conspicuous, she succeeded admirably. The neatness and order of the house, since their marriage, had been a matter of surprise to her husband's friends and it was not long before the farm showed the effects of her management gaspard vallon assisted her with his counsel and as the french methods of agriculture were considerably advance of those in england instead of things going to rack and ruin as john fletcher's friends predicted its returns were considerably augmented naturally she at first experienced considerable opposition the laborers grumbled at what they called new-fangled french fashions but when they left her their places were supplied by her countrymen, who were frugal and industrious accustomed to make the most out of small areas of ground and to turn every foot to the best advantage gradually the raising of corn was abandoned and a large portion of the farm devoted to the growing of vegetables which by dint of plentiful manuring and careful cultivation were produced of a size and quality that were the surprise and admiration of the neighbourhood and gave her almost a monopoly of the supply of Canterbury. The Carters were still English, partly because Lucie had the good sense to see that, if she employed French laborers only, she would excite feelings of jealousy and dislike among her neighbors, and partly because she saw that, in the management of horses and cattle, the Englishmen were equal, if not superior, to her countrymen. Her life was a busy one, the management of the house and farm wood alone, "'have been a heavy burden to most people. "'But she found ample time for the tenderest care of the invalid, "'whom she nursed with untiring affection. "'It is hard upon a man of my size and inches, Lucie,' he said one day, "'to be lying here as helpless as a sick child, "'and yet I don't feel that I have any cause for discontent. "'I should like to be going about the farm, "'and yet I feel that I am happier here, "'lying watching you singing so contentedly over your work, "'and making everything so bright and comfortable.' "'Who would have thought, when I married a little French lady, "'that she was going to turn a notable farmer? "'All my friends tell me that there is not a farm like mine "'in all the country round, "'and that the crops are the wonder of the neighbourhood, "'and when I see the vegetables that are brought in here, "'I should like to go over the farm, if only for once, "'just to see them growing.' "'I hope you will be able to do that some day, dear. "'Not on foot, I am afraid, "'but when you get stronger and better, as I hope you will.' we will take you round in a litter and the bright sky and the fresh air will do you good lucie spoke very fair english now and her husband had come to speak a good deal of french for the service of the house was all in that language the three maids being daughters of french workmen in the town the waste and disorder of those who were in the house when her husband first brought her there had appalled her and the women so resented any attempt at teaching on the part of their French madame. After she had tried several sets with equally bad results, John Fletcher had consented to the introduction of French girls, bargaining only that he was to have good English fare and not French kickshaws. The Huguenot customs had been kept up, and night and morning the house servants, with the French neighbors and their families, all assembled for prayer in the farmhouse. To this John Fletcher had agreed without demur his father had been a protestant when there was some danger in being so and he himself had been brought up soberly and strictly up to the time of his accident there had been two congregations he himself reading the prayers to his farm hands while lucie afterwards reading them in her own language to her maids but as the french labourers took the place of the english hands only one service was needed when john fletcher first regained sufficient strength to take much interest in what was passing round he was alarmed at the increase in the numbers of those who had attended these gatherings. Hitherto four men had done the whole work on the farm. Now there were twelve. "'Lucy, dear,' he said uneasily one day, "'I know that you are a capital manager, but it is impossible that a farm the size of ours can pay, with so many hands on it. I have never been able to do more than pay my way, and lay by a few pounds every year, with only four hands, and many would have thought three sufficient.' but with twelve i counted them this morning we must be on the high road to ruin i will not ruin you john do you know how much money there was in your bag when you were hurt just a year ago yes i know there were thirty-three pounds his wife went out of the room and returned with a leather bag count them john she said they were forty-eight. Fifteen pounds represented a vastly greater sum at that time "'than they do at present.' "'And John Fletcher looked up from the counting with amazement. "'This can't be all ours, Lucy. "'Your brother must have been helping us.' "'Not with a penny, doubting man,' she laughed. "'The money is yours, all earned by the farm. "'Perhaps not quite all, "'because we have not more than half as many animals as we had before. "'But as I told you, we are growing vegetables, "'and for that we must have more men than for corn.' but as you see it pays do not fear about it john if god should please to restore you to health and strength most gladly will i lay down the reins but till then i will manage as best as i may and with the help and advice of my brother and his friends shall hope by the blessing of god to keep all straight the farm throve but its master made but little progress toward recovery he was able, however, occasionally to be carried round in a hand-litter, made up for him upon a plan devised by Gaspard Vallon, in which he was supported in a half-sitting position, while four men bore him, as if in a sedan-chair. But it was only occasionally that he could bear the fatigue of such excursions. Ordinarily, he lay on a couch in the farmhouse kitchen, where he could see all that was going on there, while in the warm summer weather he was wheeled outside and lay in the shade of the great elm in front of the house the boy philip for so he had been christened after john fletcher's father grew apace and as soon as he was old enough to receive instruction his father taught him his letters out of a horn-book until he was big enough to go down every day to school in canterbury john himself was built upon a large scale and at quarter-staff and wrestling could before he married hold his own with any of the lads of kent and Philip bade fair to take after him, in skill and courage. His mother would shake her head reprovingly when he returned, with his face bruised and his clothes torn, after encounters with his schoolfellows. But his father took his part. "'Nay, nay, wife,' he said one day. "'The boy is eleven years old now, and must not grow up a milksop. "'Teach him, if you will, to be honest and true, to love God and hold to the faith.' but in these days it needs that men should be able to use their weapons also. There are your countrymen in France, who ere long will be driven to take up arms for the defense of their faith and lives from their cruel persecutors. And, as you have told me, many of the younger men, from here and elsewhere, will assuredly go back to aid their brethren. We may even have trials here. Our Queen is a Protestant, and happily at present we can worship God as we please, in peace but it was not so in the time of mary and it may be that troubles may again fall upon the land seeing that as yet the queen is not married moreover philip of spain has pretensions to rule here and every englishman may be called upon to take up bow or bill for his faith and country our co-religionists in holland and france are both being cruelly persecuted and it may well be that the time will come when we shall send over armies to their assistance i would that the boy should grow up both a good christian and a stout soldier he comes on both sides of fighting stock one of my ancestors fought at agincourt and another with a black prince at Crécy and poitiers while on your side his blood is noble and as we know the nobles of france are second to none in bravery before i met you i had thoughts of going out myself to fight among the english bands who have engaged on the side of the hollanders I have even spoken to my cousin James about taking charge of the farm while I was away. I would not have sold it, for Fletcher's held this land before the Normans set foot in England. But I had thought of borrowing money upon it to take me out to war, when your sweet face drove all such matters from my mind. Therefore, Lucie, while I would that you should teach the boy to be good and gentle in his manners, so that if he ever goes among your French kinsmen, he shall be able to bear himself as befits his birth on that side, I, for my part, "'though, alas, I can do nothing myself, "'will see that he is taught to use his arms "'and to bear himself as stoutly as an English yeoman should "'when there is need of it. "'So, wife, I would not have him chidden "'when he comes home with a bruised face "'and his garments somewhat awry. "'A boy who can hold his own among boys "'will some day hold his own among men, "'and the fisty cuffs, in which our English boys try their strength, "'are as good preparation as are the courtly sports.' "'in which, as you tell me, young French nobles are trained. "'But I would not have him backward in these, either. "'We English, thank God, have not had much occasion to draw a sword "'since we broke the strength of Scotland on Flodden Field. "'And in spite of ordinances, "'we know less than we should do of the use of our weapons. "'Even the rules that every lad shall practice shooting at the butts "'are less strictly observed than they should be. "'But in this respect our deficiencies can be repaired, in his case.' for here in canterbury there are several of your countrymen of noble birth and doubtless among these we shall be able to find an instructor for phil many of them are driven to hard shifts to procure a living and since that bag of yours is every day getting heavier and we have but him to spend it upon we will not grudge giving him the best instruction that can be procured Lucy did not dispute her husband's will but she nevertheless tried to enlist gaspard vallon who was frequently up at the farm with his wife in the evening for he had a sincere liking for John Fletcher, on her side, and to get him to dissuade her husband from putting thoughts into the boy's head that might lead him, some day, to be discontented with the quiet life on the farm. She found, however, that Gaspar highly approved of her husband's determination. "'Fie upon you, Lucie! You forget that you and Marie are both of noble blood, in that respect being of condition somewhat above myself.' "'although I too am connected with many good families in Potou. "'In other times I should have said it were better "'that the boy should grow up to till the land, "'which is assuredly an honorable profession, "'rather than to become a military adventurer, "'fighting only for vainglory. "'But in our days the sword is not drawn for glory, "'but for the rights to worship God in peace. "'No one can doubt that, ere long, "'the men of the reformed religion will take up arms "'to defend their right to live and worship God in their own way.' The cruel persecutions under Francis I, Henry II, and Francis II, have utterly failed in their object. When Merindol, Cavrieres, and twenty-two other towns and villages were destroyed, in 1457, and the persons persecuted and forced to recant, or to fly as we did, it was thought that we were but a handful whom it would be easy to exterminate. But in spite of edict after edict, of persecution, slaughterings, and burnings, in spite of the massacres of Amboy and others the reformed religion has spread so greatly that even the guises are formed to recognize it as a power at fontainebleau admiral coligny montmorency the chitons and others openly pervest the reformed religion and argued boldly for tolerance while Condé and navarre although they declined to be present were openly ranged on their side had it not been that henry the second and francis were both carried off by the manifest hand of god the first by a spear thrust at a tournament the second by an abscess in the ear france would have been the scene of deadly strife for both were when so suddenly smitten on the point of commencing a war of extermination but it is only now that the full strength of those who hold the faith is manifested beza the greatest of the reformers next to calvin himself and twelve of our most learned and eloquent pastors are at Poissy, disputing upon the faith with the Cardinal of Lorraine, and the prelates of the Romish Church, in the presence of the young king, the princes, and the court. It is evident that the prelates are unable to answer the arguments of our champions. The Guises, I hear, are furious, for the present Catherine, the Queen Mother, is anxious for peace and toleration, and it is probable that the end of the argument at Poissy will be an edict allowing freedom of worship. But this will only infuriate still more the papists, urged on by Rome and Philip of Spain. Then there will be an appeal to arms, and the contest will be a dreadful one. Nevers, from all I hear, has been well nigh won over by the Guises. But his noble wife will, I'll say, hold the faith to the end, and her kingdom will follow her. Condé is as good a general as Guise, and with him there is a host of nobles. Rochefoucauld, the Chatillons, Soubi, Gramont, Rohan, Denlis, and a score of others. It will be terrible, for in many cases father and son will be ranged in opposite sides, and brother will fight against brother. But surely, Gaspard, the war will not last for years. It may last for generations, the weaver said gloomily, though not without intermissions, for I believe that, After each success on one side or the other, there will be truces and concessions, to be followed by fresh persecutions and fresh wars, until either the reformed faith become the religion of all France, or is entirely stamped out. What is true of France is true of Holland. Philip will annihilate the reformers there, or they will shake off the yoke of Spain. England will be driven to join in one or both struggles, for if papacy is triumphant in France and Holland, Spain and France, should unite against her. So you see, sister, that in my opinion, we are at the commencement of a long and bloody struggle for freedom of worship. And at any rate, it will be good that the boy should be trained as he would have been, had you married one of your own rank in France, in order that, when he comes to man's estate, he may be able to wield a sword worthily in the defense of the faith. Had I sons, I should train them as your husband intends to train Phil. It may be that he will never be called upon to draw a sword, but the time he has spent in acquiring its use will not be wasted. These exercises give firmness and suppleness to the figure, quickness to the eye, and briskness of decision to the mind. A man who knows that he can, at need, defend his life if attacked, whether against soldiers in the field or robbers in the street, has a sense of power and self-reliance that a man, untrained in the use of strength God has given him, can never feel. "'I was instructed in arms on a boy, and I am none the worse weaver for it. "'Do not forget, Lucy, that the boy has the blood of many good French families in his veins, "'and you should rejoice that your husband is willing that he should be so trained that, "'if the need should ever come, he shall do no discredit to his ancestors on our side. "'These English have many virtues, which I freely recognize, "'but we cannot deny that many of them are somewhat rough and uncouth, "'being wondrous lacking in manners and coarse in speech.' "'I am sure that you yourself would not wish your son "'to grow up like many of the young fellows "'who come into town on market-day. "'Your son will make no worse a farmer "'for being trained as a gentleman. "'You yourself have the training of a French lady, "'and yet you manage the farm to admiration. "'No, no, Lucie. "'I trust that between us we shall make a true Christian "'and a true gentleman of him, "'and that, if needs be, "'he will show himself a good soldier also.' "'And so, between his French relatives "'and his sturdy English father,' Philip Fletcher had an unusual training. Among the Huguenots he learned to be gentle and courteous, to bear himself among his elders respectfully, but without fear or shyness. To consider that, while all things were of minor consequence in comparison to the right worship of God in freedom and purity, yet that a man should be fearless of death, ready to defend his rights, but with moderation and without pushing them to the injury of others, that he should be grave and decorous of speech, and yet have a gay and cheerful spirit." He strove hard so to deport himself that, if, at any time, he should return to his mother's country, he could take his place among her relations without discredit, he learned to fence and to dance. Some of the stricter of the Huguenots were of opinion that the latter accomplishment was unnecessary, if not absolutely sinful. But Gaspard Vellon was firm on this point. "'Dancing is a stately and graceful exercise,' he said." and like the use of arms it greatly improves the carriage and poise of the figure. Queen Elizabeth loves dancing, and none can say that she is not a good Protestant. Every youth should be taught to dance, if only he may know how to walk. I am not one of those who think that, because a man is a good Christian, he should necessarily be awkward and ungainly in speech and manner, adverse to innocent gaieties, narrow in his ideas, ill-dressed and ill-mannered, as I see are many of those most extreme in religious matters in this country. Upon the other hand, in the school playground, under the shadow of the great cathedral, Phil was as English as any, being foremost in their rough sports, and ready for any fun or mischief. He fought many battles, principally because a difference of his manner from that of the others often caused him to be called Frenchy. The epithet in itself was not displeasing to him, for he was passionately attached to his mother, and had learned from her to love her native country but applied in derision it was regarded by him as an insult and many a tough battle did he fight until his prowess was so generally acknowledged that the name though still used was no longer one of disrespect in figure he took after his french rather than his english ancestors of more than average height for his age he was apparently slighter in build than his schoolfellows it was not that he lacked width of chest but that his bones were smaller and his frame less heavy the english boys among themselves sometimes spoke of him as skinny a word considered specially appropriate to frenchmen but though he lacked the roundness and fullness of limb he had not an ounce of superfluous flesh upon him he was all sinew and wire and while in sheer strength he was fully their equal he was incomparably quicker and more active although in figure and carriage he took after his mother's countrymen His features and expression were wholly English. His hair was light brown, his eyes a bluish gray, his complexion fair, and his mouth and eyes alive with fun and merriment. This, however, seldom found vent in laughter. His intercourse with the grave Huguenots, saddened by their exile, and quiet and restrained in manner, taught him to repress mirth, which would have appeared to them unseemly, and to remain a grave and silent listener to their talk of their unhappy country and their discussions on religious matters. To his schoolfellows he was somewhat of an enigma. There was no more good-tempered young fellow in the school, no one more ready to do a kindness. But they did not understand why, when he was pleased, he smiled while others roared with laughter. Why, when, in their sports, he exerted himself to the utmost, he did so silently while others shouted. Why his words were always few, and, when he differed from others, He expressed himself with a courtesy that puzzled them, why he never wrangled nor quarreled, and why any trick played upon an old woman or a defenseless person roused him to fury. As a rule, when boys do not quite understand one of their numbers, they dislike him. Philip Fletcher was an exception. They did not understand him, but they consoled themselves under this by the explanation that he was half a Frenchman, and could not be expected to be like a regular English boy, and they recognized instinctively that he was their superior. Much of Philip's time was spent at the house of his uncle, and among the Huguenot colony. Here also were many boys of his own age. These went to a school of their own, taught by the pastor of their own church, who held weekly services in the crypt of the cathedral, which had been granted to them for that purpose by the dean. While, with his English school fellows, he joined in sports and games, among these French lads the talk was sober and quiet. Scarce a week passed but some fugitive, going through Canterbury, brought the latest news of the situation in france and the sufferings of their co-religionist friends and relations there and the political events were the chief topics of conversation the concessions made by the conference of poissy had infuriated the catholics and the war was brought on by the duke of guise who passing with a large band of retainers to the town of assay in champagne found the huguenots there worshipping in a barn his retainers attacked them slaying men women and children some sixty being killed, and a hundred or more left terribly wounded. The Protestant nobles demanded that Francis of Guise should be punished for this atrocious massacre, but in vain, and Guise, on entering Paris, in defiance of Catherine's prohibition, was received with royal honors by the populace, the Cardinal of Lorraine, the Duke's brother, the Duke himself and their allies, the Constable Montmorency and Marshal Saint-André, assumed so threatening an attitude that catherine left paris and went to Melun, her sympathies at this period being with the reformers by whose aid alone she thought that she could maintain her influence in the state against that of the guises conde was forced to leave paris with the protestant nobles and from all parts of france the huguenots marched to assist system coligny the greatest of the huguenot leaders hesitated being above all things reluctant to plunge france into civil war but the entreaties of his noble wife of his brothers and friends overpowered his reluctance conde left meaux with fifteen hundred horse with the intention of seizing the person of the young king but he had been forestalled by the guises and moved to orleans where he took up his headquarters all over france the huguenots rose in such numbers as astonished their enemies and soon became possessed of a great many important cities. Their leaders had endeavored, in every way, to impress upon them the necessity of behaving as men who fought only for the right worship of God, and for the most part these injunctions were strictly obeyed. In one matter alone the Huguenots could not be restrained. For thirty years the people of their faith had been executed, tortured, and slain, and their hatred of the Romish church manifested itself by the destruction of images and pictures of all kinds in the churches of the towns of which they obtained possession. Only in the south-east of France were there any exception to the general excellence of their conduct. Their persecution here had always been very severe, and in the town of Orange the papal troops committed a massacre almost without a parallel in its atrocity. The baron of André, on behalf of the Protestants, took a revenge by massacres equally atrocious. But while the butchery at Orange was hailed with approbation and delight by the Catholic leaders— Those promoted by André excited such a storm of indignation among the Huguenots of all classes that he shortly afterwards went over to the other side, and was found fighting against the party he had disgraced. At Toulouse, three thousand Huguenots were massacred, and in other towns where the Catholics were in a majority terrible persecutions were carried out. It was nearly a year after the massacre at Vassay before the two armies met in battle. The Huguenots had suffered greatly by the delays caused by attempts at negotiations and compromise. Condé's army was formed entirely of volunteers, and the nobles and gentry, as their means became exhausted, were compelled to return home with their retainers, while many were forced to march to their native provinces to assist their co-religionists there to defend themselves from their Catholic neighbors. England had entered, to a certain extent, upon the war elizabeth after long vacillation having at length agreed to send six thousand men to the towns of Havre, de and rouet providing these three towns were handed over to her thus evincing the same calculating greed that marked her subsequent dealings with the dutch in their struggle for freedom in vain Condé and coligny begged her not to impose conditions that frenchmen would hold to be infamous to them In vain, Throgmorton, her ambassador at Paris, warned her that she would alienate the Protestants of France from her, while the possession of the cities would avail her but little. In vain, her minister, Cecil, urged her frankly to ally herself with the Protestants, from the first outbreak of the war for freedom of conscience in France, to the termination of the struggle in Holland. Elizabeth baffled both friends and enemies by her vacillation and duplicity, and her utter want of faith doling out aid in the spirit of a huckster rather than a queen so that she was in the end even more hated by the protestants of holland and france than by the catholics of france and spain to those who look only at the progress made by england during the reign of elizabeth thanks to her great ministers her valiant sailors and soldiers long years of peace at home and the spirit and energy of her people elizabeth may appear a great monarch to those who study her character from her relations with the struggling Protestants of France and Holland, it will appear that she was, although intellectually great, morally one of the meanest, falsest, and most despicable of women. Rory, although stoutly defended by the inhabitants, supported by Montgomery with eight hundred soldiers, and five hundred Englishmen under Killigrew of Pendini, was at last forced to surrender. The terms granted to the garrison were basely violated, and many of the Protestants put to death. The King of Navarre, who had, since he joined the Catholic Party, shown the greatest zeal in their cause, commanded the besiegers. He was wounded in one of the attacks upon the town, and died shortly afterwards. The two armies finally met on the 19th of December, 1562. The Catholic Party had 16,000 foot, 2,000 horse, and 22 cannon. The Huguenots had 4,000 horse, but only 8,000 infantry and 5 cannon. Condé at first broke the Swiss pikemen of the Guises, while Coligny scattered the cavalry of Constable Montmorency, who was wounded and taken prisoner, but the infantry of the Catholics defeated those of the Huguenots, the troops sent by the German princes to aid the latter behaving with great cowardice. Condé's horse was killed under him, and he was taken prisoner. Coligny drew off the Huguenot cavalry and remains of the infantry in good order, and made his retreat unmolested. The Huguenots had been worsted in the battle, and the loss of Condé was a serious blow, but on the other hand Marshal Saint-André was killed, and the constable Montmorency a prisoner. Coligny was speedily reinforced, and the assassination of the Duke of Guise, by an enthusiast of the name of Jean-Poltreau, more than equalized matters. Both parties being anxious to treat, terms of peace were arranged, on the condition that the Protestant lords should be reinstated in their honours and possessions, all nobles and gentlemen should be allowed to celebrate, in their own houses, the worship of the reformed religion, that in every bailiwick the Protestants should be allowed to hold their religious services, in the suburbs of one city, and should also be permitted to celebrate it, in one or two places, inside the walls of all the cities they held at the time of the signature of the truce. This agreement was known as the Treaty of amboise and suffice to secure peace for France until the latter end of 1567. End of chapter 1. Recorded January 2008.